Welcome to the Leadership Mind podcast, which is brought to you by the Kane Centre at University College Cork. On this podcast, we will bring you conversations where we can explore how we think and how we can continue developing our meaning and truth-making capabilities throughout our adulthood. We hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, we invited Dee Forbes, the Director General of RTE, and Dave Kerwin, the Managing Director of Borgash, to discuss management and leadership in the context of the Leadership Mind book. This conversation was held with some invited guests. They both discussed their career paths, their management expertise, and their perspective on leadership, as well as the principles and arguments put forward in the book, and how they might apply them personally and within their organizations. A huge thanks to Dion Fanning of The Currency, who brought a special craft to the session, which resulted in a very open and lively conversation. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. It's great to have Dave and Dee here, and I'm going to try as much as possible to let them speak and share their experiences and their thoughts, not just on this book, but on leadership and management, the difference between the two and the challenges of those tasks and the challenges of reading this book and absorbing what is in this book. I will say as we go into this podcast, which is exploring the leadership mind, that we had a conversation across the road in the Keynes Centre beforehand. And if we can capture any of that conversation, I think this will be a really worthwhile evening because to me it was so vibrant and exciting and stimulating, and without being too grandiose about it, there are ideas in this book, especially when you get into the idea of complexity, that go way beyond business, I think. The idea that we need to, we need to kind of approach things with, we have to embrace complexity and understand complexity. And in a world, and this book, book does make this point, in a world where simplicity is being kind of hijacked by bad faith actors, uh, and this idea that there is a three-word slogan or a three-word solution to every problem, or a four-word in the case of Make America Great Again. This is important, very important stuff, and goes way beyond just business, if you like. But we were very fortunate to have Dave Carwin and Dee Forbes here as people who've read the book. And we will get into the book in detail, but I would like to ask the two of you first, when you talk about the old ideas that is mentioned by Keynes in, in the intro, at the beginning of the book, how much old ideas, and I'll start with you, Dee, have, how much old ideas or ideas around leadership and management have you absorbed through your career? Well, I suppose in, in any career, um, you start off not knowing what the outcome is going to be. So you, you start a job, whether it's a summer job, whatever job, and, and I think you, you do it because you have an interest in the area or because you have to make money or a combination of both. Um, but I think as you evolve through your career, I think we were saying earlier, nobody sets out in life to be a leader. Um, you know, when you're asked in school what you want to be when you grow up, you say many things, but you never say a leader. 
However, it happens over time. And, you know, I look back on my career, I, I make no bones about the fact that I fell into the world of media. And I think I was very fortunate to be surrounded by some phenomenal leaders who influenced me. So I think I learned an awful lot by observing. I learned an awful lot by learning from those around me. And of course, like everybody, I was put on courses around management, leadership, etc. But I, I honestly, personally believe that I learned the most from those around me. And they in themselves were um, strong people with a purpose, a belief. And that's what underpins a lot of my leadership style, actually, is, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of very strong values and that comes through. So the very first person that I see as a, a big influence on me, who was a leader in his field and of the organization, was Ted Turner. And Ted Turner is somebody who most people may know as a man who founded Turner Broadcasting. Um, he believed in the power of the media. He believed in the, the notion that news should be worldwide. He set up CNN, asking everybody to send in $5, and he would bring news to the world. And Ted was a huge inspiration. He was a charismatic individual. He was also manic depressant. So he had that in incredible sort of two sides to the man who was this um, incredible leader. But the one thing that he instilled in me, and I was lucky to meet him many times, was his attitude was, keep pushing until you can't push any further. And that was just a, it was a mantra he lived his life with, and, and I took it on in parts of my life, and, and so the journey began, I suppose. And then, as I say, through my life, I've been very fortunate to work and be surrounded in family and in work life by very good people who have influenced me. So for me, I suppose the values I hold have come from those around me, and I then put those into effect in a, in a business environment as well. You mentioned, before I go to Dave, you did mention as well your, your mother's role as a, mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a leader and as, a, as, a, yeah. as somebody in, working in business as well, which was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, my, my mum ran a family pub in West Cork. My dad was a teacher. And my mum was the first mentor I ever had. I didn't realise it at the time, but I always credit mum with that now because she was the business person. And I, I'll always remember her on a Tuesday morning ringing in the order to the brewery and to the bottlers. And I was young and I could not wait until I could do that for her. And when I could do it, I thought I've made it. And that was my first, I was mimicking mum to begin with. I did it and I thought, yes, I'm now, I'm now in business. You know, at the time it's, it felt like nothing, but it was huge. And, you know, she was my first mentor. She taught me how to stock take. So I grew up in that environment and, you know, very fortunate mm. to be surrounded by that. And as I say, it, it comes through every day. And I, I do firmly believe, as I say, I'm a product of the environment that I came through. And that has continued. So we'll come back to that because, you know, the mentorship and the trusted critical mm -hmm. friend, which yeah. is part of the book as well. But Dave, did you have dreams of being a leader? Like I was, I was, I, I would just cry. I think there are some people, I think Boris Johnson said he was going to be world emperor, <laughs> didn't he? So some people at a young age uh, do, do have those dreams. Dave, were you one of them? Did you want to be leader of the world? No, I did not. I did not. I was lucky I chose the wrong undergraduate degree. So that meant when I entered the workplace, my motivation was to find something I was good at and I liked, preferably both at once. 
So the first 10 years of my life then became the road less travelled. So if there was anything different that nobody else seemed to want to do, I put my hand up for it. And that brought me to America, working in Texas and Louisiana. And we talked earlier about, now I read the book, I'm kind of retrospectively applying some of the stuff. But, so moments in which I found myself trying to work with a team to achieve something. I was teaching 15 operators, most of whom were 45 plus in, in deep Louisiana. And I stood up in front of them and said, I'm here to teach you how to run a power station. And the guy at the back, his name was Pat Collins. He, we, he was Irish, clearly, but he would never know it. It was third, fourth generation. He says, have you ever done it? And that was a little moment for me because my mind was saying, oh, you need to say yes. <laughs> but my soul was saying, tell the truth or your mother will kill you. So I said, no, I've never done it before, but trust me, um, let's do this. And over the course of the next number of years, I ended up in very far-flung places in Vietnam. Along the way, I, I, ran, I had a ballad group. I, I played St. Patrick's Day in Saigon. Very, very colourful experiences that in the context of this book probably were making me, but without a purpose in mind, you know. And, and so as I came back um, into more normal kind of work environments, I suddenly was able to draw on them, mm. you know, being able to influence and persuade and, and, and bring maybe, say, a technical knowledge uh, and apply a context to it. And, and having convinced people much older than me and of much different nationalities to come together and do stuff, it seemed to give me something <laughs> that I've always been able to draw on and, and continually learn. And Dee and I were discussing this earlier. I definitely learned from working with diverse people and found that a wonderful mirror to my own deficiencies and things I needed to do. That and my, my love of books, I guess, defined a lot of my career you know well that's something again we'll come back to because when we were talking earlier the idea of mentorship and looking for answers wherever you get them and like books have been where you've gone to a lot of the time I think that's why this resonates with you because again it isn't it is a starting point in so many ways because it's a reading list as much as a as much as, as much as a book say I do think that's interesting but out turning one moment into a, into a hinge on which your whole career swung. Let's do that. But to give that moment of a little bit of vulnerability as a, as a leader is kind of interesting because you could have bluffed it, you could have said yes, but by actually saying no, you probably brought people with... There was a great line of Lyndon Johnson's, I think he said, when he was, when he was running for when he on the Kennedy ticket... And he was surrounded by all the young Bostonians of the Kennedy team. And he said, these guys are great, but I'd feel a lot happier if any one of them had ever run for sheriff once. And at the same time, you had that sense of giving them something, giving them the truth and of bringing them with you. Yeah, it was that. I mean, obviously... It, um it was in it was in microseconds. I know, and then retrospectively, and, we're and again, it my mother was in my head as well. It was like, you know, she'll kill me if I lie to these people. But it, it also it taught me a huge lesson because by were they in my corner, and subsequent to that, we were doing testing, and had all these really senior engineers telling me we should do this, that, and the other, and I was insisting that we do a certain test for the operators. And when we did it, we subsequently found the thing didn't work, and they all cheered, and there was. This, 
he's the guy, you know, that kind of thing. And we all became sort of very, very, very close, actually. And it taught me so much about not being scared to be vulnerable and, and just confront it. And people really value that, I guess, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, what's coming up for me is I'm listening to you there. Do you think you were being tested by the guys, really? And, and depending on which way you swung with your answer, that was going to have a big impact on the kind of relationships then, whether, you know, whether they would ever take you seriously yeah. or not. I mean, set the scene, this is southern Viet- um, Louisiana. I'll come to Vietnam another time. But this was not a wealthy part of the world. People from the big city, I'm sure, came down there all the time. And I wasn't even from a big city. I was from some bloody place where the language was different to them. And I had an engineering title. Engineering titles in bull chemical factories had status. And here was I, this jumped up engineer, about to teach these guys who knew how to run plants. So it was a test, but it was probably also a reflection of a hierarchy they were fed up with. And I jumped out of that category straight away for them. And that's why we got on so well. I didn't know I was doing that as much, but there you go. I just really wanted to ask you both if you could help me by defining what you mean between the difference between management and leadership. It's something we could could spend the whole night, I think, talking about those. And again, as we were talking about this, but if, you know, I've, I've always gone to the Drucker school of thought on this one. Management is about doing things right and leadership is about doing the right thing. Having said that, I think there is a piece where good management is essential for leadership and leadership is essential for good management. So I think there is a huge amount of intertwinability, if that's a real word, between the two. But I guess in the, in the hierarchy of an organisation, there are managers and then there are CEO stroke leaders and, you know, that's the way of the world. What the big challenge now, I think, is the role of the leader and, you know, what's expected of a leader. And there was a time when the leader in an organization was required to deliver the product and the bottom line. And that job was done. That's not the case anymore. As you know, it's far more complex. It's far more wide ranging. So, you know, the whole management leadership thing, I think the two have to work in tandem in both of those areas. Otherwise, you're not going to get the, the job done. And when you say it's far more wide-ranging, do you mean in terms of what is demanded of you? Because you use the term leader of an organisation there, but I think you would say that nobody within business is given the title of leader. We have leaders in politics, yeah. but we don't have leaders no, with sure. our title. And But that is, look, you are expected yeah. to lead and to deliver a message. Is that what you would Yeah, say? I guess you're, you're running the organisation, mm. But the running of the organization now is everything, you know, and rightly so, much more focus on the well-being of the individual, much more focus on the environmental impact, much more focus on the sustainability of the business um, and, and, the, and the other forces. So it's, there's just so much more to it than there was 20 years ago. Um, and, and again, if I look around to the, you know, a time when, when people in those running companies, all you heard from them was typically... We've made a profit, made a loss, and we're launching X or Y new product. Maybe that's very simplistic, but that's the vein of the conversation. Now it's the conversation like we're having tonight, plus, plus, plus. Mm. Um, and you are expected to have a view and a, a very strong view on, on lots of things and lots of areas. And, and also, I think that the whole world, you know, with coping with COVID, for example, you know, it's brought in 
this whole notion and of hybrid working. All of a sudden, everyone's companies and organizations pivoted. We were dealing with people in the offices seven days a week to now it's, we're, we're moving in a dynamic environment. That's an interesting example of it in some ways. You're also asked about that and you're asked to give an answer about you know, remote working or hybrid working and you're meant to know exactly what the solution is. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is, you know, nobody knew, nobody had even thought of yeah. the idea yeah. two, three years ago. And now it's like, D, mm -hmm. tell us how the future yeah. is going to look and yeah. you must give it with yeah. absolute certainty. Yeah. And again, it's another, it's another great example of like, the answer Dave gave. When we introduced hybrid working, we were very honest and I was very honest with, with the staff. We're going to try this. We'll then have to review and we'll see where we go again. But I think the one thing that everybody has cottoned on to very quickly is the world is not going back to what it was. Therefore, if, if, if staff and people want a different way of working, we're going to try it. So it's a, it's a two-way dialogue that's way more two-way, again, in that instance, than it may have been before you know, something like COVID would have happened. It's interesting you talk about you know, the layers of complexity now, because in the, the, the second chapter, conceptual confusion, it deals with the sort of how against that, at the, as things become more complex, there has been a kind of an emergence of simplistic solutions, you know, the, the social media view of leadership, how things can be viewed. And I think even in this book, it's quite funny because you are drawn instinctively and as somebody who probably spends too much time on their phone, you are drawn to the kind of boss versus leader. Ah, oh, here's the answers I was looking for. You know, even though it is actually, it's a bit like the Chauncey Gardner, if anyone remembers that film being there, and Chauncey Gardner, the gardener who became this sort of political guru because he said in the springtime, the flowers will bloom. And next thing he was elevated, he was being asked on the political shows and everything like this page, which is meant to be, as far as I am, is meant to be an example of how extreme and how pointless these things can be. We are naturally drawn to it and go, oh, yes, am I a boss or am I a leader? When, in fact, it is, there is no straightforward answer. That idea that there is a simple answer, Dave, is that something that is, you feel is kind of more prevalent as well at the same time today? Well, I suppose as the world becomes more complex, uncertain and, and slightly overwhelming, there's a natural human desire to say, give me the clarity. Now, as the mm. book correctly points out in a very profound way, sort of simplicity on the wrong side of is, is pushing it down the road, whereas confronting the complexity and bringing clarity, having really struggled with the complexity, well you're getting closer to a concept of leadership then. Giving people a sugar high of saying it's going to be all right in a position of, you know, authority in a business when you don't know, I think is letting people down, even though it's, it's tempting at times. It's much better to say there's hard yards here to work it out and I need help or, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% certain, but we will work it out. It's a, probably, it's a, it's a better framing. And I think the book is is very definitely drawn the lines between the type of problems you need to face as a business practitioner and the need to recognize the difference. So, you know, I built a power station, you know, literally with two people starting off. It's complicated. There's 16,000 control signals, but it isn't complex in the context of this book where you're having to work with people with many diverse opinions interfacing with a wider world with many diverse opinions. Now that's complex. And I think you need to treat the two differently. But it isn't always easy. 
because you really you really do at times standing in front of people you want to say what they want to hear yeah um, but it isn't the right thing to do i think i think what it's done for me is i suppose made me think stop and think and ask questions and again we were talking about this earlier that you know we're sometimes so busy getting on with what we're doing this whole topic of leadership hasn't had a a wake-up call like this book has given in an awful long time and and i think what the book is asking all of us to do is to stop think evaluate and then you can agree or disagree with the concept in here or the, the, the thinking in here and i think that's actually very timely because as we've just been saying the world is complex there's an awful lot going on and if we're to shift the notion of what's required of a leader and what leaders do, then this is, is giving us some answers, actually. And the, the bit that resonated the most with me, there were a couple of things, but this whole idea that leadership is not something that you once have and then it's gone, or it's, it's something that is, is, is emerging, but also the fact that your own development is what's key to being a good leader. And, you know, personal development is something that we take for granted. But I think as you go through your career, um, it's something that could really make a difference. So that whole notion of stopping, being self-critical, evaluating, all of that, that I think is the piece for me that resonated the most. And that if we can somehow instill in people this notion of, you know, whether it's acquiring that, that critical trusted friend, whether it's stopping and, and being self-critical, all of those things, that I think will create, create a change. And that's the bit for me that I'm the most excited about, actually, because maybe it's where I am in my career. Maybe, it's, maybe I now have, will have the time to start maybe doing more of that. But that, I think, will make a difference. How tricky is that at an organisational level, though? Because you talk about that, but it, it requires, you know, you talk about self-criticism, mm -hmm. but... It's harder to do that. My father used to say, the only time everyone agrees with me is when I'm criticising myself. And, uh, you know, if you stand up in front of a room yeah. and say, I've got this wrong, mm -hmm. everyone's going to jump you. You're damn right you got it yeah. wrong. Yeah. And the temptation is not to do that then. Yeah. And I, I think, being honest, what I haven't managed to, to do yet from this is take the practical application to a business place. I can take it from an individual point of view, but I'm not sure yet how we would apply this. And again, we were talking with Connell about this. The, the next thing for me would be, okay, how would you apply this? And that's going to take a little bit more thinking, I think, with the authors and, and other people around this table. Dave, you sure. Yeah, look, having read the book, I'm kind of relieved, to be honest, because now I know I, I'm probably an okay manager. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, companies can't be great without great management. Just can't happen. And it isn't easy. I suppose if, if I really dwell on, on, the, on the definition of leadership here and it does make sense and it needs a lot of thought, businesses can't rely on extraordinary leadership. It really is emergent, it really evolves, it's time and place. The best you can do, I think, is be the best you can be. And, and then insight can flow, but it takes the hard yards. It's a bit like a striker, and I was a bad striker, I was a really good cornerback. It's, you run for 100 minutes, and you do all the slog, and, and maybe that chance comes your way, and maybe you're in the maybe you do it and, and take it away. And, and it, I think leadership, to some degree, is the hard yards of management, 
positioning yourself for understanding context, providing insight, you know, with people in mind and their prospects, as the definition suggests. I actually feel better about that now because I think it's a very noble thing to work at being a great manager of a business. And then you might have a chance in the right circumstance to provide leadership. I think that's a way more refreshing way to consider this, to be honest. And it causes us then to consider how might you create the conditions for it to happen. I think that's actionable as opposed to some of the things that are written about leadership now, which are, look at him, he's a leader, or look at her, she's providing leadership. I don't know what that means. Because, see, when you talk about Ted Turner and people like that, and clearly he was a great influence, but again, there are limits to how far you can go with that, aren't there? Because he's, a, as you said, deeply charismatic, but flawed person, and maybe the thing he had above all else, which is a great thing to have, was that clarity of purpose. Yeah. Absolutely, and that, that is one thing he had very clear um, in, his, in his mind, and likewise some other people I worked for as well. Um, John Hendricks, the founder of Discovery, his whole life was based on his purpose to satisfy curiosity, mm. and that resonated right through the organisation. So again, you, you, know, you, you, were, you, you got strength from that, actually, as an employee in the organisation. But you're right, it only goes so far. And then I think the other piece in the book, which is kind of aligned with this, is this whole notion of the, the whole self and that a leader is a, is a product of the entire self. It's not just the thinking, it's the emotion, it's the sensing, it's all of that. And again, I just think we're, we're living in a time where that has become so important. The D that you see in RT every day is a D you see in West Cork at the weekend. You know, it's, it's me. In, in all my flaws and everything else. And I think, again, you only get to that place by sort of looking into yourself and going, I can be a better leader if I'm true to who I really am in the whole and not just the, the business piece of me. So it's, you know, it's about whether it's about, you know, your health, your, you know, how you look after yourself. You know, all of those things are now incumbent on me to put across to the team as well. So that, that bit, again, I think is also something that we're, we're probably more comfortable with now. I, I worked for American organisations all my life until I came back to Dublin seven years ago. And that was, a, it's very much a, it's encouraged in American organisations, you bring your whole self to work. Oprah was, you know, such a, an advocate of that, but they do live that. Mm. And, and again, you, you don't get a piece of the person, you get the whole person. And that makes for a particular culture in an organisation, but it also, you see that coming from the leadership as well, and it goes right across. So I, I think there's, that's another bit for me that's really important. And I think, again, it goes, it bleeds into authenticity and the way that now, you know, to Dave's earlier point, truth, honesty, all of that is, is so important. Dave, you made the point earlier that organisations are fictions. Now, I know that's, that is something that's in... Sapiens is that point about about all groups. Really, there is a fiction, whatever it is. Laws are fictions. They're all necessary fictions, if you like. But can you explain it in terms of a business and in, in terms of leadership and management as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously, all these things are constructs. So, what is a modern organisation? What, when you boil it down, what is it? You know, a series of contracts, a building, car parking spots, titles, offices. You know, but 
But the, the, the phrase in the book that has me reeling <laughs> is business organisations are promises for operating at uncertainty. So that is a very intangible thing to have at the core of an organisation. It's a group of people voluntarily choosing to be there, to do something in concert on behalf of, you know, and could we write that down today in the company I, I'm responsible for? No way, not a chance, forget it. Like, could Adam Smith have conceived it when he wrote The Pin Factory? Possibly, because you did stuff. But the modern organization is founded on promises in a way that is not comprehensible or understood by any single individual, which has huge implications for the people that are intending to run them. Uh, because you do approach the task slightly different if you believe this. And of course, organizations give the sense of longevity and tangibility because they're designed. So big buildings, you, you, you go into organizations that have existed 50 years ago, and if you consider they don't exist anymore, if you were there 50 years ago, you'd say, that's, that's unbelievable. Look at the scale of this, look at it, look at, but all it is, is a group of people exercising themselves to achieve something bigger than themselves. And I think that's incredibly powerful. So it isn't to diminish the value or, or the, the substance of any organization that exists, but it is a bit of a mind trick until you understand what it truly is that creates organizations. You're saying that the foundation and promises is the key thing, yet it's not the way we talk in business and organizations. No, no. Um, we, talk, we talk about roles and responsibilities, we talk about hierarchies, we talk about buildings, offices, we, we talk about stuff that is very tangible. But the secret sauce of the modern organization in dealing with complexity is the promises. And it's causing me to think, <laughs> what is my role? If my role is to, to create value from that construct, uh, and before anyone asks what's my answer, I haven't a clue yet. <laughs> but it, it's what, it was a game changer statement in the book and it's going to be with me for a while now. It is where we're, we're, you know, we go to with the book because it is about, like it is, it is fascinating listening to both of you talking about that sort of showing of uncertainty and showing that vulnerability and being courageous enough, if you like, to be able to say that to or you know within an organization that we are we you know you talk about hybrid working this may not work we'll come back because that is as you say like is it is perhaps and as, as you re read the book it becomes it is something that is more than ever essential to make people aware of the complexity of what you're doing yeah and if you you know if you look at you know leaders by the very nature of the the word means they need to have followers and followers are staff, and you need to bring people with you. And it's not as binary as, as it once was. Mm. And and I, I do think that, you know, staff, they expect leadership and a, and a path by which the organization is going down. They expect that to be set out. What I think people are now much more aware of is that that path may work, but it may not as well, mm. because there are so many other forces at play that you know can't come into it. But I think it's it's incumbent on the leader who to walk that path again with the staff. It's not just the, the leader or the, the boss, whatever, on their own. It's this is a collective here. And again, I think that that whole piece of hierarchy and 
you know, them versus us. Organizations are a collective of many great minds and great people. And it's by harnessing that collective, you get the best outcome for any organization. So again, I think that means that the, the, the leader has to be closer to the organization, closer to the people and, and be open to getting ideas from anywhere. You know, and that, that again, I think is something that has to be encouraged, is encouraged, and is something, again, that I, I think has evolved over time. You know, there used to be yeah. them and us. I don't think that is, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. When you talk about the, the challenging nature of the book and what the ideas in it, and you talk about it at an organisational mm-hmm. level, like, that is something, again, because everybody it, it, it's straightforward enough, so it doesn't, doesn't diminish the challenge to see what you can, do, what we'd have to do at an individual level to embrace some of the ideas in the book. But everybody in an organisation is at different stages of their career, of their path. So to say to people, organisation-wide, this is, this is what we're embarking on in terms of leadership and in terms of management, again, is a very, it, it takes a lot of trust to get people to that position. For sure, and I'm not sure we've got the answer yeah. to that yet. Yeah. I don't think we're there. That's why I'm, I, I can see it, how I can apply this as an individual. To me in an organisation, I'm not sure I can apply it yet to an organisation. And that's where I think we need to delve a bit deeper. So I, I've taken from this a lot of personal work, homework, um, for me to do uh, that will make me a better leader. But as I say, I'm, I'm not there yet on how you could take this organization-wide, and that's being very honest. And I think you keep pushing the door there that we're not, how are we going to implement this? Mm-hmm. And what I struggle with all the time is I don't know how we can implement it unless we actually begin to look at development and actually really understand where people are. But, but I do think this, this whole area of development is something, again, that we need to think about a lot harder and better because we talk about development in organizations, but really we're talking about training. And there is a big difference. That comes out loud and clear in the book, actually. And I think if we approach some of the, and again, maybe this can happen with a particular group or a particular level in an organization, you could actually create uh, a mini group and try something, you know, eight or 10 managers and just see where this would take you. But I think think the secret's in the whole development piece. It's having people who are developed enough to take this on board, I think, in the first instance and go, okay, you know what, we can try this. It may not work, but it may do as well. And not everybody can be there, but I I also think that if you have two or three people who feel it and recognize this could work, then you've got the environment to to go there. And that isn't, it isn't easy, but it's probably probably a small sample you take and then you, you dig in and go from there. I have three nieces, sort of 12, 14, 15, and we talk a lot about women in business, and one of them said to me two years ago, why are you always talking about women in business? And my response to her was, so that when, when you grow up, you won't have to. That was my response. But we were talking about it, a few of us one night, just about this whole thing, and where does it go wrong? Because at their generation right now, for example, they don't see any difference. They're thinking, like, why, why is Auntie D talking and making a big deal about ensuring women in business have a voice and if something happens and I think it's when they enter the workplace I think it's they're through school they're all doing the same they're playing football they're playing whatever they're they're doing whatever they want to do and the world's their oyster 
and then something happens. And it's only when they enter the workplace that this shift happens. Now, I don't know if anybody here has done any delving into that, but I, I think that there's something there that needs looking at because they're, all, they're doing great and the world that they go into shatters everything. Do you pick the image of a, a leader as a male unconsciously and you're working with that? Or do you actually buy into our argument that the definition of leadership we have come up with is ungendered, not even just gender neutral, it's not taking gender out, it just doesn't arrive gender in the concept. The concept of leadership is fundamentally ungendered, with the result that if in discussions and planning and talking, gender slips in. Now that's something about yourself, that's something about your bias and your prejudices. So now you have a tool of thought that says we can think about leadership without it being gendered. And any genderization is a result of your prejudice. Now, I think that is a huge splitting of the, the way of thinking, and it matters for practice. So it comes back to how we think, and we think with concepts. On that as well, just as somebody who loves sport, but I would, no, I actually, one of the things, I would love if we could break the link between the idea of the sports team or like, you know, people giving those here as a sports team and their link to good practice in business or good practice in management. Like Alex Ferguson, no, he, you know, he, he's written a book called Leading. He's written, I, wouldn't, I, I don't think anyone should be taking leadership instruction from Alex Ferguson. I think the ideas that are, are put forward by professional... Professional sports, like Roy Keane's another one. The, professional, the ideas that are put forward by professional sports teams are not... When you talk about ungendered leadership, obsessive destructive loyalty to an authoritarian leader. That's that's the big that's Alex Ferguson's big idea. We're, we're trying to shift the word to hate. Yeah, but but, but this right. but this is the thing and people and they, this and they, maybe it's a gender thing as well because maybe people men who name name sportsmen as their heroes then say, Who do I want to listen to about leadership? And maybe they have something to offer, but I'm not I'm maybe there's a an idea about team building and stuff like that, but I'm I'm not sure now I'm not sure the idea, the concept of a team in a professional sport is really transferable to team in a business because it does stress loyalty to a crippling degree above anything else when I would suggest that actually the only sports team I would say who actually be a good model for management are the Dutch football teams that used to go to the World Cups and self-destruct because they all used to raise uh, different points and arguments and undermine their manager. But at least they were putting ideas out there. So uh, I think Richard Ford said, Richard Ford said sport, when he wrote The Sports Writer, and somebody said, obviously you've written about sport because it's a metaphor for life. And he says, sport isn't a metaphor for life. Life doesn't need a metaphor. And uh, I think that's it. I think we can, it's simplistic, but it is interesting that that's where well, it comes from. Can, can I just bring your attention to just make a point? Uh, the David Dunphy point on book 78. You talk about team spirit and being together, but you always find in practice when bad times come, the cracks come, then it's every man for himself. Yeah. So, so much for team and sport. Well, that's Steve, Ar Steve Archibald, who played for Barcelona, said, says, team spirit is an illusion created by winning. And team spirit was a great horse who won the Grand Dave, do you, on teams and creating that sense of feel the emphasis should be? Well, not in a sporting sense, of course. Look, we should first of all appreciate the, the hierarchy of needs here. 
at its basic level, if you go back to the nature of an organization and the contract people have with it, is people work t to live, right? But they, but they give discretionary effort because they think they're doing something bigger. So I'm going back to my favorite phrase of promises a bit. So people in our organization do more than we ask them to regularly. Why? And, you know, because they, they take ownership, actually, of the company and, and how it performs. That doesn't come from me. And how does that happen? What glue is it that creates the bind between people and companies that buy a purpose, buy an outcome, and take pride in delivering it? That's the secret sauce. Mm. And it's not trivial create. It's easy to break. And it's something I guess people like me should really cherish and, and feel like you've got to safeguard that and cultivate it and allow it to happen. So, you know, the Alex Ferguson method doesn't achieve that. I, and nor do, I, nor do I endorse reading these types of books. I love sport too, but yes. I don't read sports books because they're trivial in, in a lot of cases. And, and it, it goes a lot, and disappointingly as well, business biographies are, are somewhat similar. So we're better off reading Viktor Frankl. But I wouldn't diminish the, the power of purpose and people voluntarily buying into it. Because to be frank with you, if it was left to me to direct people to do what needs to be done brilliantly in, in the company I'm responsible for, I'd get it wrong. I, I couldn't agree more, actually, Dave. And, and again, you know, an organisation like RTE has a very clear purpose. And it's that purpose that brings people together. And it's, the pur it's that purpose that makes people go that extra yard. So the purpose is to serve the nation and to bring the nation closer. And, you know, never was that so much more to the fore than, let's say, during COVID, where thankfully nothing fell off the air. Mm. People came to work when the rest of the country was staying at home, bar the front line, et cetera. But that sense of the show must go on because we have a really important role to play. And again, the clarity of purpose. absolute clarity of purpose is so strong that it does propel people to go um, and do more than they need to or should do because it's it's almost unimaginable that it, it couldn't happen you know and i think so that there is a loyalty there but the purpose is even bigger than than the loyalty because it's so important and people really feel that and you know i think sometimes that can come through can come through maybe stronger in a, in a public sector organization but certainly it's very very strong within rte and that goes into teams, it goes right through the organisation, it doesn't matter what role you have to play. But that clarity of purpose again, when we, if we branch it out beyond business, a clarity of purpose can be a, a sort of a high concept or again a, a three word slogan. It's a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a thing in the worst instances, and as we might come back to come to the complexity, is it in its worst examples, something that people will latch on to too. And when you look around, like, you know, Robert Kennedy clearly is obviously mentioned in this book, but like, you know, it, it is a funny thing, leadership, leadership moments, if you like, rather, because we, 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 we accept the idea that it's not a, a lasting or a permanent condition. But it is easy to see, and it's funny you mentioned COVID, because earlier when we were talking about it, I did think about, I mean, you talked about vulnerability, Dave. Actually, Leo Varadkar at the very beginning of COVID was... And I know things frayed, but that moment when actually he said, this is going to be 
hard and it's going to be difficult. And you could contrast it with Boris Johnson in the UK, who was pretending everything was going to be okay. And one was an example of leadership, a leadership moment, and one was an example of the opposite. And when you look around, do you take from people in positions of power? Do you see people who you think that is a, that is a leader, or do you take from leadership moments, if you like, from different people? I think it's probably a combination of both, because I mean, there's no doubt you take the Robert Kennedy speech, that was a, a product of a circumstance, and the rest is history. You talk about the Baratka moment, you know, that was, as you say, a very powerful moment and one we probably all remember where we were when that speech, you know, was, was given. Mm. But, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I do think that politics and moments have happened in politics which are maybe more easier to kind of pinpoint. Um, mm. Mandela's talked about in the book, you could look at Martin McGuinness in a similar vein, you know, so there's a lot of political examples. There may not be as obvious ones maybe in business because... Maybe they're not seen yeah, as off as clearly or they're not up there on a pedestal as the business moments. But but I'm sure everybody has a story from COVID in the business world, you know, akin to, to my story, which was, you know, gosh, there was everyone came together and there were some really incredible moments that happened, but no one knows about them because mm. they happened. And again, I think everybody has moments like that at some stage, but you know they're not going to get headlines as I say, because they're not. It's not the way it's done. But it's interesting how the examples in the book. There's a lot about political example. What would the equivalent in business be? We couldn't. We couldn't, we couldn't come up with any. No. We were talking about it. I mean, a very good example of the opposite. There's plenty of examples of the opposite. Is the the unfortunate man who took over Boeing after the, the first Max, Boeing Max crash. And he'd come up through Boeing and he was clearly into the Boeing way of thinking. And a plane crashed and he did it the Boeing way, which actually included cover-up, because that was the Boeing way. Mm. And another plane crashed, tried to save, and of course then he got 120 million payoff to go away. And that's what happens in business. But you can see the failures all around. But people don't like to talk about them. Can we pay attention to one that came up this evening? Where day, and I think it's a perfect example where you gave the example of being in the power station out in, mm. you know, and you made your decision with that group of 20 operators to give a particular answer. Mm. It, well, I was but just... Nobody's going to remember. Nobody's yeah, going to write about it. See, it just came up here the, the these aren't books. I think that's the point, yeah. These aren't books. They're, they're vignettes. They're, I mean, yeah. it goes back to my... The separation of leadership and management, which I find very, very useful in the book, is the reality. So the moment comes and passes, and the question is, what do you do in the moment? I mean, and, and the other thing to remember about the, the concept of leadership introduced in this book is others judge whether it happened, right? So if someone said to me, Dave, write all your leadership moments, they're not mine. And I don't know if they happened or not, to some degree. And I think that's a truer reflection of the business biography that isn't written than the ones that are written, to be honest. And, you know, I, I explained to Connell, because we're old friends, I got quite irritated at certain points of reading this book because I felt under attack as a business practitioner. Why do these business practitioners put up with all this nonsense written about leadership? So I quoted Bart Simpson. It was like that when we got here. But, <laughs> but in actual fact, 
I think the responsibility of people like me and Dee and others in the room <coughs> are probably to share the mistakes and to share how we learned. I think we'd be doing much better service to people in development if we did that. Because retrospective stories of glory do little justice to how you learn. And again, the book talks about promises and the corollary being forgiveness. So I think it's, it's actually saying, we got here by making mistakes. We got here by learning on the hoof. Someone very benevolent let me do stuff I had no qualifications to do at times. And this is how you develop. And I, I, th I think that's... Yes. I think, I think that's... That space. How, I do think you that's do, how do you create that space? Because if, if Dave or Dee stands up and said, I've made tons of mistakes, yeah. you walk out of the room and there's going to be somebody saying, you heard her. Right. She made a load of mistakes. And to, to again, to admit that vulnerability yeah. requires that there is that space where people understand what's going on. Okay. This is the hard part. This is why I'm going to bring this up because yeah. you mentioned earlier that you know maybe it's the stage of your mm -hmm. career that you're at that when you get to the chapter seven chapter you know the end of the book you're open to that mm -hmm. because of you know you're you said you're you're leaving RTE next year and you're thinking about what's next so this comes at a good time for you to be thinking about change and the challenge of change but again to go back to your point most people don't want to think about change unless, and you say 85% of people settle, and to, to actually, most people only make radical change in their life when they're, when they're forced to. And how you actually affect that in a way that isn't a forced thing, or, or you know, or when you're making a, a, a big jump in your career. Yeah, and look, I think, you know, your point, Connell, that up to the age of 30, or at 30, everything stops. Is that because people are happy with their lot? They've achieved something and there's a lot going on. There are life stages that That's right. that you just you've got to make choices. Mm. Um, but but certainly and again you know as, as you said Dion you know with me my, my time in RT will be finished next year. I'm now in that space of where do I go next? So I'm doing a lot of my own evaluation and you know critical evaluation to go okay what's next where is next and you know, I, I have got a critical, trusted friend um, helping me because I know I can't do that. And you've got a book to guide you. And I've got a book to guide me. Um, so I'm well ahead of the posse. Um, but, but again, and I'm, but I'm fully, you know, aware that that mightn't be for everybody. Mm -hmm. But I think as well... And, and it's we, okay, I just say, we need to be clear fine. We're and not, that's fine. We're not judging people, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What we are, however, judging is this. If 85% of people settle at what's called the socialising mind, they're misaligned with the complexity of the world. Now, that's the problem. We haven't enough people aligned with the complexity of the world. I mean, what Dee is talking about there, you know, even in your own personal situation, having to, you know, see that there's a question coming down the line, but you actually start to work on it way before it ever hits you. And I think uh, Karen gave the example of a, of a young person, say a young graduate or somebody in training who's struggling with their communication. So how do we deal with that? You talk about people going into the workplace. So do we say, off you go on the training course and here are the 10 steps um, and you can get up now and, and do the training course the next time. But what we forget most of the time in that is it's actually not the 10 steps the person needs. It's the whole person. They have probably not so much stomach 
they have um, sort of, a, a, you know, a, they're unaware of their audience, they don't even know who their audience is, what they might be looking for. So what they actually need is the whole person approach to, let's sit down and actually go through it. So what are you trying to achieve? Who are you speaking to? You know, what, what are the speed bumps that get in the way? You know, how could you uh, help yourself with those speed bumps and, and so on? So it's a holistic conversation that takes account of the person with emotions, with feelings, with ability to reason, and as well as the information side of it. But most of the time, and we're, like the educational system, I suppose, has an awful lot to account for um, coming out of leaving service, where it's all about information. And yet, and, and people do through sport, why do we encourage our, and build our societies on sport, on culture, on the arts, on reading, all these other really, really important parts of somebody's development. But yet when it comes to actually, you know, assessing the kids at that crucial, crucial 18 years of age, it's so biased in one way. And um, now there are wonderful undergrad programmes that do great work with them by through work experience, through, you know, getting them to, to make presentations and that. But I do worry that... The, the developmental idea that you've got a whole person in front of you and you must deal with the whole person, that's not really understood. And that's not anybody's fault. We can't blame the lecturers, we can't blame the teachers, we can't blame anybody. It's all of our responsibility to have different kinds of conversation. So the idea that 85% of people are in a socialising mind, that has massive repercussions for the kind of conversations we have and for the kind of you know, way we live our lives full stop. So, and, and what socialising really means is it's necessary. We survive, we have to go through this, that stage of development. It's really important if we're going to survive. But the problem is when we get stuck there. And yet, you know, we talk about this a lot with people. People go, what's that? And am I stuck there? And that simple kind of explanation, it, it can be, you know, just a conversation or read something, whatever. And that has the potential to be so transformative for people once they realise that actually this trap and um, what's actually keeping them caught and unhappy themselves in their own lives is this inherited accumulation that they've become because of the way they were, uh, you know, community, society, education, everything that's so entrenched and ingrained. You talk about gender earlier and girls going into the workplace. You know, it's so in our DNA to look at things in a particular way. So one of the things we have to do is start changing our language. From a young age, we've got to start saying to children and in the workplace and beyond, what do you think? What do you want to do? And get people thinking for themselves from the get-go. They should come out of the education with a clear idea that while the education part, by which we mean knowledge, we're very clear on what we mean by it in the book, by which we mean knowledge acquisition, like that may end, or you might do it, postgraduate course, or you might do an adult education course, you might do something like that. That's a different thing. But your development should continue and can continue throughout your whole life. On that day, I just wanted to talk to you about the independent critical friend, but also other ways maybe where the truth kind of is told to you or to, to a person. And, it, and I think you would feel that like books and reading is where you go to for that as much as uh, the independent critical friend, although you might reveal who your independent friend is. My trusted critical friend trusted is, is my wife, Katrina, um, who's 22 years married as of last week, so trusted critical and friend all at once, yeah. So I'm an introvert and, and I've, I definitely reflect a lot based on interactions over my career with people. And then definitely I would have found 
diverse reading as, as, a, as a great platform for me to start to self-develop. So Drucker was one of my cr trusted critical friends. And, you know, at a point in which I didn't know whether I should be in this business, I think, you know, spending time with him, the books, his reading, probably convinced me I should stick with it. <laughs> and, you know, it's beautifully captured in Chapter 7, Angela and Maggie and, and Onise, you know. So points of Onise, I would have tried to surface, not run from, and then, yeah, OK, I ran the books. <laughs> but it worked for me. So I think, you know, the company you keep can come in many different forms. And it probably, you know, Dee and I were contrasting because Dee is a real people person, I think, and would refer to loads of mentors and, and pass over to her. But books and, and maybe, obviously, my wife, I would say, for me, definitely, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, you know, I think I, I am a people person, absolutely, and I get real energy from people. And I, I try and learn on a constant basis from people around me. And that's everybody. We had interns in for the last six months. And I have to say, it just filled my, every bit of me with such joy because they were so phenomenal. The questions they were asking of us were just brilliant. And it was a great case of reverse mentoring as a, you know, being, being mentored by the younger generation, which I'm a huge fan of. But I think, you know, for me, I definitely learned so much from those around me. But a bit like Dave, you know, I couldn't have asked for a more diverse path, if you like, you know, working for American organizations, meeting a lot of people, you know, lucky enough to work with the likes of Ted Turner and, you know, the likes. But, you know, my bosses, in fact, I have I've got about 10 critical trusted friends and there are people that I go to that I've met along my journey that if I'm stuck or if I'm kind of questioning, I'll ring somebody. And it's hugely valuable, and I, I really get a lot from it. And and I, I you know obviously you can only encourage people to do whatever they feel comfortable doing. But for me, it's been, and it still is hugely important. And and that's why you know maybe I I, I do want to keep growing. And I think every day is a, a growth opportunity. And as I say, we're we're lucky to be surrounded by great people in this country. And I mentor a lot as well. I mentor graduate, well, kids in UCD, actually, at the moment. And again, I love that. And interesting what you were saying earlier, how difficult a place they're in and they just, they're stuck. And the big question I get asked every single time is, how can I apply what I'm learning to the workplace? They are just not there. And they're not being helped in the university environment to get there. So, you know, hence, I do all of that. But... It's a journey. It's a, it's a constant journey. And, you know, I got, I got a lot from the book. As I said to Connell, it was tough to begin with. I found the beginning really hard and really hard because I'm not a reader like Davis. I, I read an awful lot for work, but it's, it's quick and it's, mm. you know, I have to do it. But I haven't read a book like this in an awful long time, but I'm glad I did. And I need to go back and read it again, actually, because um, there's still some bits that I need to sort of figure out. So, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to sort of read about it. But what I've actually found even more fulfilling is the talking about it. But again, that's me. Uh, you, know, you, gain, you gain insight from that. So, How do you bring it into practice in your organisation? Oh, I mean, there's loads of housekeeping for me from this book. <laughs> so I have to reorder 
things that I had been taking as read and now I'm not so sure about. So even in the context of development, what should organisations be spending their time at in developing people? And making brilliant managers who ultimately can find their way as whole people into leadership would be better than just saying we're going to turn you into leaders, for instance. So, you know, there's, there's a lot in the... To, to unpack, I think. But I would start with my housekeeping. So I have categories that I've been using that I now need to take down and go, whoops, <laughs> I might have been so good on that. And I think then try it out, of course. But you see, the beauty of working in businesses, every second you're in there, you get an opportunity to try, think differently. It really is the case. It's, it's so... And then I think that's why we're in business so long, because you do genuinely get to try stuff if you're interested to do it. And, and I'm at the point in my career where I'm more interested in trying stuff than not. <laughs> and I'm, I'm lucky to be given an environment where I can. So I'm privileged in that respect. So I think there's a lot there, to be honest with you. And like Dee, I'll be reading it again and probably ping in Connell a note or two <laughs> and Assumpta just to say, is that what you meant? This, it's that kind of book. And I, I did enjoy reading it, yeah. I think that's a good place to end on the on the going back to read the book again and the fact that it is a challenging book and it it and in that context it deserves to be challenged as well. So I think that's the way it's a good place to end. So thanks to Dave and to Dee and for everyone here because it was a really stimulating conversation. <laughs>
maybe test things and even the, even the, the lab analogy I thought was quite interesting trial and error in the book but t- tonight was really wonderful it was great to hear the experience of Dee and um, also Dave and just you know the struggles they have as really successful leaders in their organisations but again it's just, it's just it's good to talk it out and I think it'll be a really useful book so my name is Cahal O'Connor. I work with the pre-synthesis. I got an awful lot from the session, actually, you know. So I, I've reached a stage in my career, stroke life, where I need to think about leadership again, right? And uh, absolutely, I think this is a, a trigger for me to start thinking and, and use the book as a, as a tool in that, that regard, you know. Uh, Margarita Sullivan, I'm, I work currently with jo- Johnson & Johnson, and I'm currently writing a book on STEM and the whole idea of education versus development and how they marry and what age we should actually be, um, I suppose, exposing our teenage, our children to developing their skills and knowing where they want to go and their sense of purpose and sense of, of like their own personal development. Our education system is not helping us to be able to do that because it's focusing so much on um, syllabuses for the theory about, say, engineering as an example, without giving the practical um, applications of it in the world and how you see it and the excitement of seeing engineering all around us. So, And we want to be able to come back to be able to have education as a holistic element where you're, you're developing kids and showing them in while they're in school age, you know, how to maybe build their skills and understand their skills and understand their emotions. Like if you ask children, you know, how do you feel? Their vocabulary and language and use around that is very limited. And therefore they can't see in the world then where they can have a a purpose and and meaning. So this is an amazing book that will help us to expose some of that and be able to bring it back to maybe a younger generation as well. Ian Daly, working in Gilead Sciences in Caratool did the MBA O'Connell years ago and carried on as the DBA for a while after and I just loved the material and so be quite familiar with it I felt like we kind of darted all over the place tonight on topics and questions and uh, I don't know if we picked any thread and unraveled it enough I'd love to do that a bit more maybe with a smaller group and kind of yeah, get stuck into it deeper kind of thing but I need to read the book as well more I'm only on chapter two I'm Eileen Cole from Board Excellence. I found it a really interesting session and in particular Dave's comment around differentiating between management and leadership and how he almost felt freed after reading the book, felt that he's hopes that he's a really good manager and now he needs to go on and focus on being a better leader. Fergal Lennon, MBO Partners, and uh, it was wonderful to hear uh, Dee Forbes and Dave Kerwin share uh, their experiences of reading the book, how helpful they found it and challenging in places that they found it and how, in the end of the day, it got them thinking about their own development and their own journey and also the realisation that they've got to go back in and reread this book again. So I now know that I'm not the only one who's feeling I've got to keep going digging in into this book. Paddy Crow, yeah. I have my own practice in natural medicine and healing and, uh, and I've been involved in the DBA in UCC for many years as well. So I feel there's loads of room for exploration. You know, this is just a, the tip of, tip of something where we say, now let's, let's step in and let's explore this. Like. So I feel, so that's the part I'd be interested in now is, okay, let's explore now. You know, so that's, that, that would be my take on it. My name is Asamta O'Kane and I'm one of the co-authors of The Leadership Mind. 
We've just had a conversation with 25 people around the table uh, discussing the book and getting people's lived experience of the ideas in the book, good and bad. One of the big themes that has emerged is how to bring development, how the human being develops, how to bring that into real life, into the workplace, into the educational setting, into families and society in general. And that really seems to be the question, I think, that is bubbling up from, as an implication from this book. If we want to see leadership ultimately as insight in our so-called leaders or heads of our organisations, ultimately, it's something we need to be starting quite early, people's development. Uh, how will we do that? That is the question. It will involve new language. It will involve different thinking. It, funnily enough, I actually think quite a lot of this work is actually going on in our primary schools. And maybe the, we're not actually aware to the fullest extent of how children are being brought along as whole little ones um, going in and out. But we lose it so quickly. Um, and yes, the teenage years are there. And yes, the impact of technology is there. But then when all of that goes into our organisations as the socialised mind and people are afraid to express themselves and worried about what other people think of them, that's where we shut down a lot of the creativity and the imagination that, that is actually needed to fuel the fresh ideas of the future. Um, so we've set some ground you know, in this book by drawing attention to the whole person and the need to develop and manage and lead from our whole persons. But we've a lot more to do because it's not understood. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Mind podcast where we transform how we think about leadership for ourselves. As a final reflection, we would like to leave you with our guiding observations from John Maynard Keynes, which says, The difficulty lies not in the new ideas, but in escaping from the old ones. For more information, please visit our website, keynes.ucc.ie.